All right. This is a an interesting one because we're uh, we're ending it uh, tonight. Tonight's our last Wednesday night Bible study. Uh, uh, I, I said to the group, if, if you'd have said to me we could fly through Revelation in seven weeks, these are just my study notes for Wednesday night. And uh, it's been a, a great journey. And there are parts of me that wish we'd have gone much, much longer. And parts of me that are really glad we did it the way we did it. Uh, and, and the way I look at it, and I, I hope you will too, is that this is my first time through it in depth. Uh, so I, I've read it, of course, uh, but but I have never pieced it together like we have over these seven weeks. And particularly not with a, a sense of, of seeing the, the story that that the Spirit has given to John, that 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 the the revelation, it's a you uh, when you hear about it, you think it's this disjointed series of scary images that get made into really, really bad movies. And we have seen, or I have seen over the, the time that we've been together, that there's a there's a thread that runs through it uh where there's there's really a whole lot of congruent uh um structure across the passages particularly as the numbers of things connect uh the the separate visions the seven of this three of this and uh, of course in the last two chapters the number 12 is is used a good bit and so as we have watched those stories kind of weave together it's been uh um, it's been invigorating for me, and I, I look forward to the next time that I, that I spend uh, going through it. Where are we? Chapter 19. All right. Who remembers what's happened uh, before? Last week, the uh, end of the Roman Empire. Okay. And that was symbolic of the end of empires. Yes. Symbolic that all empires uh, come to a close, that that uh, uh, the Roman Empire was symbolic or Babylon, as John called it, was was symbolic of of the uh, the government structures that men create. And uh, and when the uh, I'm going to get in trouble here, I'm, I'm really not being political. Let me just say it when the. Government stops serving the people, and the people are expected to serve the government. It has become an empire. Mm -hmm. And in that situation, it becomes the um, uh, the emperor worship cult that we saw all the way through Revelation. Uh, the, the idolatry that seems like one of the big two uh, that... Uh, uh, that, that that seemed to really bother the spirit as he unfolded this to, to John. You remember that that even in the the New Testament, when the uh, apostles got together for the Jerusalem conference and they were trying to give uh, words of advice to the Gentile churches, they said, uh, 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 oh, "Okay, we're not going to make you be circumcised like Jews, but two things you should keep in mind: avoid sexual immorality." And don't eat food sacrificed to idols. Don't, don't, don't. The idolatry and the immorality. Idolatry and immorality. And in the, uh, when we turn our attention to uh, chapters 19, 20, 21, 22, we, we have that, that sense of separation. That, that, that now the, the great empires have been judged. They, they, the judgment has been pronounced on Babylon and, and hence, uh, judgment's been pronounced on all of the empires that ever were, that ever are, that ever will be. That 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 when the government stops serving the people, when the when the leaders uh, uh, demand to be served, absolute power corrupts absolutely. Uh, the the writer of Revelation says that will that will fall, and uh, they he named uh, seven empires. Uh, five had already happened. Six was the current one, Rome. Uh, remember the first Babylonian Empire, then uh, the Assyrians, and then the second Babylonian Empire, then Persia, uh, Greco-Macedonian, um, then Rome, then one yet to come. 
And so he's he's leaving that that uh, blank spot to tell us that whether we say that it's our government or the world government or a, a world government that that will come when when uh, a nation or a person finally begins to do what Hitler tried to do, what uh, the uh, Japanese uh, Empire tried to do in World War II, what Russia has tried to do and and China has tried to do and what many would say America has tried to do. The, the word colonization has has been thrown about a good bit and and in its its negative sense it's it's one uh, uh one one people one person trying to express domination over the rest of the world and god says it's going to fall he, he said it, it, it when when that happens we begin to worship not the god who created the government but the government who is trying to replace god and so the the final chapters of the book um, are built on on that last uh, final uh, thought from chapter eighteen, uh, particularly verse nine. All the kings of the earth who committed sexual immorality, who lived in luxury with her, will weep and wail when they see the smoke of her burning. Uh, last uh, verse 19, they threw dust on their heads. They wept. They cried out. Um, Babylon has fallen. For God, verse uh, 20 in chapter 18, has, has given judgment for you against her. And then verse uh, 21, so will Babylon, the great city, be thrown down with violence. And so it's... If you don't catch the scene change, you almost feel like John's a little schizophrenic because he's pronouncing judgment over Babylon. And then in the next verse, there's rejoicing in heaven. And it's like, do we really serve a God who rejoices over the... Uh, the inevitable uh, crumbling of an empire? Do we do we really think that's a, a good thing? And so we begin chapter 19, and we are aware that there's been a scene change. So John, writing, he says, After this I heard what seemed to be the loud voice of a great multitude in heaven, crying out so uh we've moved on uh from rome uh my uh opinion throughout all of this has been that um all of the images even if they are actual and literal all of the images represent this and more they they there's always a uh, now and future fulfillment of the prophecy. There's there we 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 can always find a a future government or a future uh, a dictator or a a future scenario. But at the same time, we remember that John was writing to uh, the 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 displaced people of Asia Minor, right? He's he's writing to to Christians who were losing hope because they thought Jesus was coming back and he still hadn't. And so he's he's writing this vision of all of the things that they're experiencing, which is why a lot of people say that the tribulation for sure started in the first century because these people had horrible things that happened to them. Other people would say that was just a taste. That was that was just run-of-the-mill persecution compared to what's coming. And we'll get back to that in a second because we can never get too far from our study of Revelation from the fact that you're going to get what you're looking for. That if you're pre-millennial, you're going to find it. If you're post-millennial, you're going to find it. If you're pre-tribulation, you're going to find it. If you're post-tribulation, you're going to find it. That that we 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 want to approach with open hands and open hearts and open minds because all of them have validity and all of them have problems. And we're going to see that in a minute 
when we get to that famous passage about the thousand-year reign. So here, there's rejoicing in heaven because the, the, the curtain is being drawn. John is saying to people who are discouraged, hey, there are signs of the times. These empires keep rising and falling. And we can certainly see the cracks in all the world empires today. These empires keep rising and falling. But now let's move our, our, our scene to heaven. Chapter 19, verse 1. The loud voice of the multitude in heaven crying out. So all the, the nations that are being judged there on earth, now we've moved our, we've relocated to heaven. Real estate people, location, location, location. <laughs> and a very interesting word. Without, if you know the answer, don't, don't tell me, but, but I'm just curious. How many times do you think the word hallelujah is used in the New Testament? <laughs> How many? Four times. Four is all? Yes, sir. And where is it? Verse one, three, four, and six. The only place the word hallelujah is used in the New Testament is right here. Really? Yeah. Now it's used in Psalms a good bit. And then there are other words of praise, but it's uh, the word hallelujah is a transliteration of a Hebrew word. Yah is God, hallelujah is praise. So praise God is, is the, the transliteration, but it's only used here in that form. Now, let's see if I can stump you. What part of speech is it? This footnote doesn't say that. So it what verse and what chapter? <laughs> Is it A, an interjection, B, a declaration, or C, a command? I'd say it's an interjection. It's all three. It's a command. It is, it, the, the word praise would be a, uh, a verb that has the implied you. You praise God. You praise God. And it's, it, 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 it to me has so much more force that way and so much more fun because the scene is shifted to heaven and the angels are saying, just in case you missed it, guess what we do here? <laughs> guess what our job is? You praise God. That's what you do. So he says, you praise God. Salvation and power, glory belong to God. His judgments are true. And just. He has judged the great prostitute. So obviously Rome is still in view here, but but the idea is that this is vindication for all of those who have been abused by the power of the powerful. All those who have been stereotyped, all of those who have been uh had expressions of prejudice against, all of those who have been oppressed, all of those who've been victimized, all of those who have been persecuted martyred vindication he has judged the prostitute she corrupted earth with her more immorality and he has avenged her on her the blood of his servants so there's a a vindication and then another command hallelujah the smoke from her goes up forever and ever anybody's study bible Tell you where that quote came from? The smoke that rises? Isaiah 34.10. Isaiah is prophesying the fall of the, the capital of Edom, the Edomites. And he's in the 8th century uh, before Christ. He's prophesying the smoke that will rise on the mountaintops that Edom is built on. Uh, if you've ever been to Petra in Jordan, that's Edom. And so that area with the mountains and the and the high places, the book of Obadiah is built about, uh, is written about the judgment on Edom, that you trust in your high places. And so the smoke rises, that's Isaiah's prophecy, 
and now John captures it from the uh, the the angel who's giving him this this vision, and then the twenty four elders and the four living creatures. We we know them. We've met them. The uh, they worshipped God who was seated on the throne, saying, "Amen." Translation of "Amen" is what? Hallelujah. So, so, oh, so be it. So be it. So be it. Or I agree. I agree. It's a it's an expression of agreement. So I agree. Praise God. And from the throne, a voice saying, "Now, the language here. I, I don't want to be misleading." You would think that if it's from the throne, the voice is God, mm -hmm. but it's not. Uh, the, these are likely angels because they say, praise our God. Okay. So it's not him. He doesn't say, praise me. Praise, uh, praise our God, all you servants, you fear him, small and great, all believers, all classes, all stages of progress in the Christian life. Those of us who, who feel like we've got a long way to go in our faith. That if I started now, I don't know if I could confess all my sins before I die. Mm -hmm. That th those of us who feel like we're a work in progress, we're included. We're we're here, small, great. And then he he drifts into a another metaphor. And you who have uh, uh, been uh, privileged to have a daughter get married. Uh, this would be the save the date. <laughs> the, the, this isn't the marriage supper right here. This is the save the date. What he's about to say is still in the future. And, and we feel like most of 19, 20, 21, 22, we feel like those are future fulfillment. Almost everybody, all the scholars stack hands around that. However, however you view pre, post, amillennial, this is in the future. This has yet to come. This this last section describes the end of things. And so in the future is the marriage supper of the Lamb. And so there uh, apparently there's been an engagement party. And so another verse 6, Hallelujah, the Lord our God Almighty reigns. Let us rejoice, exalt, give him glory for the marriage of the Lamb has come. So that there is an announcement, a, a sort of a save the date. Um, don't have a, a, a lot of time to go into it, but if you looked at Isaiah chapter 25, you would find a lot of similar language through Isaiah 25, 6, 7, 8, 9 in there, where it talks about the anticipation of the coming of the Messiah. And so the marriage supper of the Lamb the, the when that marriage happens, that is the second coming that that whenever you think that's going to happen, that's when it happens uh, in terms of the lyrical picture that's in the book. But uh, in, in the same way as I had a, um, a moment when I was studying last week, you remember when I said that that when I got to the place where it says that the faithful are marked with the mark of the of the lamb and I and I wrote in my Bible uh, what whose mark do I wear look at the last uh, part of the prophecy I started to say the last line on the page but your page might be different than mine <laughs> it says and his bride has made herself ready and I wrote have we it's clear the bride is the church uh, that's that's consistent throughout scripture. The bride of Christ is the church. And here's this declaration in heaven, and his bride has made herself ready. And I ask myself the question, have we? Have we made ourselves ready for the coming of the king? And and Jesus, this was a pretty big deal to Jesus. You remember that he told two different parables about this. Do you remember what they are? He told the parable of the great uh, banquet where the invitations were sent out and uh, uh, no one came, go out into the hedges and highways, compel them to come. And then he told the most 
To me, the most interesting parable he ever told was the parable of the ten virgins. That, that to me is just the best. Because the way Jesus set it up, he said that uh, there are ten bridesmaids who have said to the bride they will attend to her. The Jewish wedding custom was that nobody really knew exactly when it was. It wasn't two o'clock on Saturday afternoon at the church. It was whenever the groom gets the bridal chamber ready, he goes and gets the bride. And then they, you know, they know there's a season. They, they know that the time is coming, but they don't know exactly when it is. And so apparently in the parable, the groom got ready at, in the evening and, and he and his groomsmen went to the bride's father's house and they fetched her. One commentator said that it was not uncommon for them to carry her in a bed, <laughs> that, that, that her contribution to the bridal chamber was the bed. And so her father had to make the bed. And, and I, I had this picture of these groomsmen carrying a four poster through town with <laughs> her just on the mattress headed for her wedding. The bridesmaids who thought to go to Costco and get the oil for their lamps, they were good to go. The ones who said, it's on sale tomorrow, I'll just go then. He came when they didn't have enough oil, and the, the parable says they were left out of the party. And so Jesus told two parables about the readiness of the church for the return of the groom and uh, so it was a pretty big deal to him. And um, and and the, the, the close of the poem, it was granted to her. Uh, she she didn't she didn't get her clothes. The, the, the groom gave her, her clothes. God gave her, her clothes. She's dressed in fine linen, bright and pure, righteous deeds of the saints. And then uh, in verse nine, chapter 19, we have another one of the Beatitudes. Remember the, the seven Beatitudes of Revelation, the, the blessed are they statements. Um, the last one was in uh, chapter 16, verse 15, and, and then the rest of them are here in these last few chapters. Uh, blessed are those who are invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. Blessed are the, is the church. Blessed are the, the faithful. And then the, the, the angel said, these are the true words of God. And then I fell down at his feet to worship him. But he said to me, don't do that. I'm a servant just like you. Worship God for the testimony of Jesus is the spirit of prophecy. Between chapter 19, verse 11, and chapter 20, uh, verse 15, there are seven, anybody surprised? There are seven statements of I saw. So there are there are seven declarations of a of a, a a bit of a pivot in the visions within the vision, where John says, I saw this, so it's significant. And he has seven of these statements over these few chapters that sort of outline um, uh, a pretty wild version of, of what's going to unfold. He starts in chapter 19, verse 11. He says, then I saw heaven opened. Is that what everybody says? Everybody's translation says the same way? It's a then I saw statement? Okay, there's seven of those. We'll find them. Uh, then I saw heaven opened. So the, 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 the wedding announcement has gone out. Save the date. I won't tell you when the date is, but save it. I saw heaven open, and behold, a white horse. And now all the casual readers of Revelation are going, okay, this is the part I've heard of before. <laughs> I've heard of that white horse. The one sitting on it is called Faithful and True. Now, that is the first of four times that the name of Jesus is used without ever giving his name. Matter of fact, in a minute, he's going to say he doesn't give his name. He's the only one that knows it. But John's cagey. He, he gives us his name. He said he's faithful and true. 
In righteousness, he judges and he makes war. Now, that's a startling statement when we read that about Jesus, isn't it? He makes war. He's, he's done with Mr. Nice. He's making war. His eyes are like a flame of fire. Significance, anybody? Discernment, eyes, what you see, what you observe. His, uh, on his head are many crowns. Okay, not just one crown, but many crowns. And the word that is used there is the word diadem, uh, rather than the other one, Stephanos, which is a crown of achievement. This is a crown of royalty. This is a, a crown that goes only on the king's head. This is not the crown that's put on the runner's head when he crosses the finish line. Uh, it's not that that wreath thing. This is, this is a royal crown. And he has a name written, but no one knows it. Anybody got an idea of what that might mean? <clears throat> Are you aware that when we read in the Old Testament, the um, the your, usually your Bible has just four capital letters when it names God as Yahweh. Uh, it, it may spell it out in some of your Bibles, Y-A-H-W-E-H, but a lot of times it just has the, uh, what's what's the called? Transgrammaton. Pentagrammaton. <laughs> With just the four letters, Y-H-W-H. And, and the reason it's abbreviated is that the Hebrews thought his name was too holy to say. They, they wouldn't say Yahweh. They, they, it, would, it would not come out of their mouth. The word, and, and even if you see uh, modern day Hebrews write, if they use the word God, usually they do G uh, underline D. They, they won't even spell it all out. And some think that perhaps there was a little bit of a connection with the old and new here that says this, this is Yahweh. Yahweh is Father, Son, Holy Ghost. His name is too holy to say. And yet he's already told us he's faithful and true. Uh, clothed in a white robe, dipped in blood. Some scholars um, would say it's dipped in his blood. That unlike a conquering hero who has slashed his way through the battlefield and on him is, is the, the blood of the conquered foes, uh, some have said maybe the blood on his robe is his own, symbolic of the lamb who was slain. Um, <laughs> and the name which he's called, there we go again, the word of God. And so we get... Uh, his name a bunch of times, he's faithful and true, he's, he's the word of God, um, he's the king of kings, he's the Lord of lords, verse 16. And then we have another I saw statement where John's vision uh, pivots a little bit and he sees an angel uh, standing, um, calling to the birds to eat the flesh of the kings and captains of the uh, the representative of the empires and uh, and anybody who would bow to the empire. You remember, we've already had uh, uh, many chances for mercy. We've already said he, he didn't destroy all the world, a third of this, a third of this, a third of this, and that there was a, uh, last, last week, I think we called it a, a, a remedial judgment, where it was a judgment to, to woo people to a, uh, uh, a, a repentance. And so there have been multiple chances throughout Revelation for uh, people to come to Jesus. But now we remember that that that, that time is, is maybe up. Now, I'm going to put an asterisk there because I'll come back to that in a second. But um, so so the the angel calls the birds to come and eat the flesh of kings uh, this this final great conflict of good and evil. Verse 19, another I saw statement. I saw the beasts, the kings of the earth, their armies. They're, they're, they're holding out till the last. How they 
did tribulation and persecution and they they saw the beast and the dragon and and they saw the the conquering of all that how in the world are they holding out well it gets worse stay with me they gathered to make war against him who was sitting on the white horse but the beast was captured so the not the dragon but the beast so the antichrist is captured and also the false prophet. Those were the beasts of chapter 13. Who in his presence had done those miraculous signs. And deceived those who received the mark of the beast. These two were thrown alive into the lake of fire that burns with sulfur. And the rest of their minions were slain by the sword that came from the mouth of him. Who was sitting on the horse. Pretty grim picture here, right? Well, let's dive right in. Another I saw statement. I saw an angel coming down from heaven, holding in his hand the key to the bottomless pit and a great chain. And so, so the jailkeeper of hell, and he sees the dragon. Now, that's interesting, isn't it? That, that a, a few chapters ago, Michael, the archangel, was doing battle with Satan. And here we have an angel... And Satan has been so declawed by now that an angel just throws him into hell. And all we get is a few verses. I was expecting an epic battle or at least a full-length movie. And all we get is he sees the dragon, he threw him into the pit. He bound him for a thousand years. Dick, how many times in the scripture does it talk about the millennium? I think... Zero. Right there. Is that it? Okay. It, 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 it doesn't really tell us it's a thousand years of anything. It just says now now this is where it gets really crazy to me. So the 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 following is an editorial. Okay. Paul said this is not of God. This is from Alan. <laughs> so if there is if the beast and the false prophet and the dragon have all been thrown into the pit. The angel with the chain, I pictured a janitor with one of those things that pulls out from his belt. He's, he's locked up hell, right? They're, they're, they're put away for a thousand years. Now, again, there are some people who believe that the second coming is or, or that the rapture is before the tribulation or and before the thousand year reign. This is a thousand years of peace. This is not a thousand years of tribulation. This is a thousand years when when Satan is locked up. There, there's, there's no demons running around on the earth. This is a, a thousand years of peace. The people who call themselves pre-millennial would say that the rapture of the church happens and none of all of this is going on, is going on in the presence of believers. I'm okay with that, except it just told us it was in heaven. <laughs> so it, it's probably going on in front of believers, even if they've been raptured. So, so, so they're aware of this battle. Heaven is not this, this utopian forgetfulness where we don't know of any pain. Yes, it's going to say there's no more tears and all that, but, but there is a, an awareness that, 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 that this is a place where God is and evil isn't. So then the scripture tells us that I saw thrones, another I saw statement, and seated on them were those who had the authority to judge and the souls of the martyrs, those who had been beheaded. They had not worshipped the beast or its image. The rest of the dead did not come to life until the thousand years were ended. So the people who were dead stayed dead except for the martyrs. Apparently people who had been beheaded or who had been killed, uh, they, they had been resurrected. Some 
uh, writers call this the first resurrection. And so they'd apparently been raised from the dead, and that's a good thing. And they are uh, a part of the, the judgment circle. And uh, verse 6 says, blessed and holy is the one who shares in the first resurrection. Over the second, over them, the second death has no power. And so they have been resurrected, but there's still some people that are dead who are still dead, and apparently some people that are still on earth. Because a thousand years of peace goes on. I, I want to read uh, something that somebody wrote that was just interesting to me. Um, oh, here, here we go. Um, for a thousand years of the direct reign of Jesus over the earth, Satan was bound and inactive. But after the thousand years are over, he will be released and successfully organize many people on the earth in another rebellion against God. So they've had a thousand years of nothing but Jesus. They have a thousand years of peace. A thousand years of none of the presence of Satan, none of his influence, none of his work. And yet when Satan is released, he can organize a rebellion. Hmm. David Guzik said this. Still, we're still vulnerable to, because of we're human, we're still vulnerable to Satan. No matter. That is ex that exactly. I, exactly. Yeah, I think that I... I'm going to have this perfect peace now. And and then if I got that, it would last forever. And I, I'd never have to worry about it. Uh-uh. Which tells us that rebellion is not from without, but from within. Guzik said it this way, for all of human history, man has wanted to blame his sinful condition on the environment. Of course I turned out the way I did. Did you see the family I came from? See the neighborhood I grew up in? With the millennial kingdom of Jesus, God will give mankind a thousand years of a perfect environment. No Satan, no crime, no violence, no evil, no pathology. But at the end of a thousand years, men will still rebel against God at his first opportunity. They will powerfully demonstrate that the problem is in us, not in our environment. That's we why it started. Adam and Eve had this perfect place to live. And, and that makes so much sense that our confession is a daily thing. I think I've called it spiritual breathing that Bill Bright called confession. He said we breathe out the confession of our sins. We breathe in the forgiveness that God has granted. And and I it's a it's a pretty harsh thing that we see right here that a thousand years of perfect environment and Emily you're right that that we have to be on guard all the time we can't depend on our environment to help us we can't blame our environment when we're hurt we have to depend only on the lamb uh, who takes away the sins of the world and that's a great but the deal segue is, is that we have to it's not like be on alert, be frightened. It's be on alert to be present with God. And and those are different things to me. For much of my religious life, I felt like people were trying to frighten me into doing the right thing. Yeah, yeah. And and the one of the writers that I read gave this illustration. I, you know, most of us in here are a little long in the tooth, but... Um, we may remember a time when either us or one of our children was lost at a store, uh, an amusement park, uh, you know, a festival of some kind. And, 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 and we as a parent spot our child and they haven't spotted us yet. <laughs> and on their face is an expression of sheer terror. But as soon as they see us, there's this recognition, there's this joy, there's this glee as they run to us, 
because now they're in the presence of the one who's going to protect them. Mm -hmm. All the fear that they had of being lost, of being separated, of being uh, whatever might happen to them, all of that melts away because they see the face of their parents. And, and Emily, I think that's what he's getting at here is that, that, that the environment is still terrifying. Nothing about the environment has changed. What's changed is that we're in the arms of the Father. But Alan, this this just says there's no Satan. It doesn't say there wasn't any disobedience during this. Who's the author of disobedience? Well, yeah, and, but I was wondering the same thing because it doesn't. Satan is gone, but the wicked heart of man hasn't changed. There has been no new creation yet. I still think if the, if the people there are so willing to follow Satan as soon as he comes back. Well, the wickedness of their heart is already there, which makes me wonder if during that thousand years, what are they engaged in? Are they still? And how are they passing it down to their kids? There's 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 nobody living that law. So apparently they're passing down this this rebellious spirit from generation to generation, which makes sense. As Emily said, that's that started in the in the fall, you know, when when Adam and Eve in a perfect environment. Something in them, and I don't want to get into a long discussion of this, but you know what it is that's in them? Free will. We we have the agency to determine whether we will embrace God or whether we won't. The frightened child can either run to the parent or not. And and I, I don't I don't think you're wrong, Nancy. I, I think that inside of the hearts of men was that latent rebellion that is a a result that God loves us enough to let us choose him or reject it. Now, we as a child should know that the choice that we make is what we make, and God knows what choice we will make. But uh, the, the I, I think it points to the determinism, to the agency that we have as uh, humans with free will. Let's Move on. Somebody, uh, somebody, I just one other thing. Somebody's been having me write and work with the difference between surrender and submission. Yeah. And and surrender is using that free will to make a decision to follow God. Submission is kind of bitter resignation. Okay, I'm going to play this game. Yeah. Yeah. Fake it till you make it. Um, yeah, I like the, I like the illustration. One, one of my friends said there aren't really any lost people. There's just prisoners of war. <laughs> they're, they're just temporarily in the hands of the enemy. And, um, yeah, I, I think you're exactly right. Surrender means that we, we have, uh, John has, uh, is going to do the first, uh, sermon in the forgiveness series. And he's, he's trying to come up with a definition of forgiveness. And way back in the day, somebody said forgiveness has given up the right to be right. Uh oh, that's a good one. And, and surrender is, is, is given up the right to be in control that, that I have free will and I have decided to follow Jesus. And, um, I like it. Chapter 21, aren't we just rocking along? Here's the new heaven and the new earth. All of the language that's there doesn't talk about a renovation or a flip. It's a teardown. <laughs> this, is a, this is a McMansion being built over the lot. It's a new heaven, a new earth. Um a Wednesday night only content for the first heaven and earth had passed away. The sea was no more. Somebody take a guess as to what the reader might have meant when he said the sea is no more. There, there's no more ocean. Yeah. You know, when you, when you think about a world where you had no idea what was on the other side of that big body of water, it's separated. It was a barrier. It was in the way. That's no more. No more barriers. The holy city, the new Jerusalem. Here we go. 
Dun, 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 dun. Now the holy city coming down out of heaven, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. We save the day. Here it is. A loud voice from the throne saying, behold, the dwelling place of God. Now, again, the same same observation. That voice is not God because it talks about God. He will dwell with them. They will be his people. And here we go. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes. Death shall be no more. No mourning, no crying, no pain. The former things have passed away. Now, verse five is different. Anna, read that one. He who was seated on the throne said, I am making everything new. Then he said, write this down. These words are trustworthy and true. So whose voice is that? God. That's God. How many times has he spoken directly in the book of Revelation? This is first Second. 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 Chapter 1, verse 3. Chapter 1, verse 3. Verse 8, I'm sorry. I am the Alpha and the Omega, says the Lord God, who is, who was, and who is to come. Chapter 1, verse 8. And he says the same thing here. Now, okay, I just read chapter 1, verse 8. Now, verse 6 here says, and he said to me, it is done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. And I'm going, wait a minute. John is circling back to John chapter one. Mm -hmm. He's he here to the throne, the voice from the throne, the alpha and the omega, the beginning and the end, uh, the all the, the the angel giving the vision. It's like we're wrapping all the way back around uh, with the symbolism of chapter one in the consummation here in uh, the, the final chapter. So uh, oh, I, I didn't say anything about the great white throne. My bad. How'd y'all let me skip that? Uh, back up a little bit. We'll come back to Alpha and Omega here. Um, after Satan was defeated after the thousand years, he was released from prison. Uh, there was uh, a, a battle, but it uh, turned out to be all hat and no cattle because it just gives us a, a quick summary that he was thrown back into the lake of fire, back where you belong, angel with the thing on his belt, locked it up again. Then I saw a great white throne. And here's the other part you've likely heard of in Revelation, the great white throne judgment. He says... God was on it, on the throne. From his presence, earth and sky fled away. There was no room for them in heaven. Heaven is so full of God's presence. There's no room for what we would call earth and sky. It's just, we don't know what kind of existence it is, but it's nothing like we know. <clears throat> and then I saw the dead, great and small, standing before the throne and what was opened? <laughs> Plural? Plural. Yes. So what were those books? It says books were opened, and then another book was opened. One is the book of life. It's the judgment. It says... This is for unbelievers, isn't it? For non-believers, or I'm gonna I'm gonna save a lot of time and say yes. Okay. <laughs> I believe that I know that believers will be judged. We will that this in Paul in Corinthians says we will appear before the judgment seat of Christ. 
Now, I don't necessarily think this is us. However, Jesus was pretty emphatic that our that what we do in this life matters. That the way we live this life matters. But the way Paul said it was, we stand before the judgment seat of Christ. And he judges us not on the basis of the law, but on the basis of our identification with his death, his burial, his resurrection. So the judgment seat of Christ, it's, I have every belief that he's going to bring up what I did. I have every belief that I'm going to have to, to be ashamed before Jesus of what I've done. But then he's going to, it, the, Paul says it burns. And it burns. All that remains is grace. And here he says, the books are opened. One is the book of life. And the dead were judged by what was written in the books, according to what they had done. And the sea gave up the dead who were in it. Verse 15, if anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. What is absent there? They were judged according to what they had done. But that didn't send them to hell. <laughs> it says they, they were the lake of fire if their name wasn't in the other book. Grace. You are waiting on me to explain that, right? Different degrees of hell. Mm. What do you think, Nelson? Great. Okay. You want to live by the law, you will be judged by the law. If you haven't placed your faith in Christ, you're living by the law. You, you are, you're trusting in the law. You're trusting in your works. You're living by the law. And, and he, if, if, if there's bad deeds in these books, you're judged by the law. And if you haven't allowed yourself to be judged by grace, your name written in the book of life, then it really doesn't matter how many good things you've done and how many bad things you've done. That you're judged by those things because you have rejected Christ and you're insisting on appealing to God on the basis of the law. Because the only alternative to the law is grace. For by grace are you saved, and, and that's through faith. And even that faith is not something you can conjure up. It's a free gift of God, lest anyone should boast. And so the, the it, it feels to me like it's coming down to a a very uh, clear statement that if you want to be judged by the law, so be it. You've got to accept it, right? Right. You know, That's the free will. Part. I wrestle with that. You know, I get this. You know, the, am I really forgive? You know, forgiven. Sure, sure. And and he puts it that in us to avoid what Bonhoeffer called cheap grace. He doesn't he doesn't allow us if we're really in the spirit, he doesn't allow us to ever get over what grace has freed us from. This grace has allowed our name to be written in a book where yes, we stand before the judgment seat of Christ. Yes, we are aware that we have done much. And we've been forgiven much. Well, I thought we were supposed to have abundant life knowing that our sins are forgiven. So when we're talking about, like you're talking about it, it's like, I've got to worry about my sins. I love you. No, not at all. Not at all. And and, and that, that's, a, that's a great point. Paul, um, back in 1 Corinthians... Ah. Okay, in 1 Corinthians 15, he talks about the resurrection. And he says, if the, if the dead aren't raised, then Christ is not raised. And he tells us about the value of the resurrection. And then he tells us in chapter 4 of 2 Corinthians that um, we have treasures in jars of clay to show that the surpassing power of uh, belongs to God. And then over in chapter 5, 
chapter second Corinthians chapter five, he said, so we are always of good courage. For we know that while we're at home in the body, we're away from the Lord, but we walk by faith, not by sight. We are of good courage. Um, for we all must appear before the judgment seat of Christ so that each one may receive what is due for what he has done in the body, whether good or evil. And so there's a rewards or there's recognition or there is a reminder of that which he's forgiven us. But Paul quickly says, but that burns good, bad, indifferent. It burns in the face of the glory of God. So so I, I would I would agree with you that's it's not we don't have to fear being for the judgment seat of Christ. If anything, it's merely an awe that he could forgive me of so much. That that he could forgive uh even me of so much. All right. Uh I guess I better finish up chapter 21 and 22. Um he said, I'm making all things new, verse 5, chapter 21. That's both corporate and individual. Remember 2 Corinthians 5, 17, if anyone's in Christ, he's a new creature. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. Uh, that's, I'm making all things new. Write this down. I am the Alpha and the Omega. Uh, to the thirsty, I give water. I will be his God. He will be my son. And now the Angel says, let me show you the bride. Let me show you the church. And John was given a vision of the church as it was supposed to be. And he describes the new Jerusalem. And the word, the number 12 here is the number of completion and protection. A high wall, 12 gates, 12 angels. I don't know why angels need to defend the gates. There is no evil in heaven. He measures the city. Uh, I believe this is all symbolism. Uh, I don't. Uh, I don't think it's limited to 144,000, and I don't think it's it's measurable. Um, verse two in chapter 22. Um, the riv the angel showed me the river of the water. So so the tree of life that we uh, met in Genesis chapter one. The the tree of life is is there. It's back. It yields its fruit each month. Um, it's not guarded anymore like it was in Genesis. No longer will there be anything accursed, but the throne of God and his lamb will be on it. The servants will worship him. Chapter 22, verses 6 through 21. That's an epilogue. Okay, that's uh that's that's John wrapping it up. And he said to me, These words are trustworthy and true. And the Lord God, wait a minute, he said to me, so now we've got some red letters. <laughs> These are the words of Christ in red. These words are trustworthy and true. The Lord, the God of the spirits. He sent his angel to show his servants what must soon take place. Jesus says, I am coming soon. And the, the second to the last of the Beatitudes, blessed is the one who keeps the words of prophecy in this book. I, John, I'm the one who heard and saw these things. So, so the quotation marks that close at the end of verse 7, that's the close of the the quotation from Jesus, now John takes over again. He said, I'm the one who heard and saw these things. And when I heard him, I, I fell down to worship at the feet of the angel who showed him to me. He said, stop it. Let's worship together. Then uh, verse 10, he says, don't seal the words of the prophecy. You remember when the, the scroll was held in the hand of God, it was sealed. He says, don't seal it anymore. It's, it's, it's supposed to be read. He promises again, verse 12, I'm coming soon. I'm the Alpha, the Omega, the first, the last, the beginning, the end. Now, John again, blessed are those who wash their robes. There's the last of the seven Beatitudes so that they may have a right to the tree of life. They may enter. Nelson, that's the accepting grace. Behold, uh, uh, blessed are those who wash their robes. 
Blessed are those who accept, who they, they have a right to the tree of life. They may enter the city outside of the dogs, the sorcerers, the sexually immoral, the murderers, the idolaters, everyone who loves and practices falsehood. So there we go again with idolatry and immorality. And he says they're outside the city. They're, they're not present there. Now Jesus is quoting again. He says, I have sent my angel to testify to you. The spirit of the bride say, come. And let those who hear say, come. John is probably uh, back uh, writing when he says, if I warn anyone who hears the words of the prophecy of this book, um, that's not unlike what God said back in the law. Um, back in Deuteronomy uh, chapter 4, you shall not add to the word I command you, nor take from it, that you may keep the commandments of the Lord your God that I command you. He, he did the same thing with the Ten Commandments. He said, don't add to this. Don't add to this. And then uh, we close out the, the prophecy. Um, and I want to go back to those two things I wrote in my Bible. Whose mark do I bear? And have I prepared for the coming of the groom? Because the revelation is not about fear. It's not about us being terrified. It's about us. Grateful. And hope. It's about us knowing that we're not judged by the law. We're judged by the standards of the cross. And that. Yes, we'd love for Jesus to come back soon. We'd love to see our loved ones. We'd love to, to be in a place where when I get up in the morning, everything doesn't hurt. <laughs> but in the meantime, we wait for the groom. We, we make ourselves ready as the bride of Christ. And we do so with hope, with purpose. I'm going to do something a little different Sunday. My uh, my eight points to the sermon are the eight stanzas of the hymn Amazing Grace. Oh. So we'll see where that takes us. Wow. All right. Thank you all. This was fun. Yeah.